Good morning. It is good to be back with you. Uh, I'm, we're back in Acts, so if you can flip to Acts 5 in your Bible. Uh, so I am uh, an English teacher at the Stony Brook School, a boarding school to the west. Um, and uh, yes, this is the final weekend of the year at the boarding school, and it's a closed weekend, which means all the students have to stay there. Um, and each dorm does their own chapel, um, and so my wife is doing her chapel this morning with her group of girls. Uh, last night at 10 p.m., we had our annual end-of-the-year Hageman Chapel, which is the middle school and uh, older guys' dorm, and there are some guys in there who have been in the dorm for seven years, um, and I've known them since they were wee high, uh, and it is, it is crazy the depth of the relationships you develop with students, and so it's a, it's a cool time for us, so if you think about it, um, say a prayer for us. It also seems to be a period that students kind of reflect on uh, their time at the school and what has been different, and um, we had a, a baptism ourselves of six or seven students, and a couple of alumni came back to be baptized as well. So some cool things going on there. All right, so we are in Acts. I am working through Acts with you all. Um, actually starting in Acts 4.32. This is a tough passage, I'm not going to lie. Um, what is good about just preaching through a book, though, is that it forces you to go places you might want to skip. Um, and I, I make it kind of a rule of thumb that if I ever read a passage and think, I really don't want to preach that, that I absolutely should preach that. Um, that's the place probably most likely that will be challenged and confronted. And this is a challenging and confronting uh, passage. Um, what we've seen thus far, if you've been hanging with me in Acts, uh, we've seen the beginning of the church. It's the creation of the church, and this is kind of our family history. And what we've seen thus far is usually the pattern is God acts, uh, the disciples interpret that action, and then there's a response. And thus far in those actions we've seen, like Pentecost, we've seen actions of God's outreach and his mercy. And here we have a restatement of God's, uh, God's love for his law, his love for the purity of the church. And so baked into our family history is grace, mercy, outreach towards others. But it is also true that we believe in a God who desires that we obey, that we serve him. So let's dive in on this passage. Uh, it's a little longer. The, the message is shorter, if that <laughs> makes you feel good. Uh, but let's just do it. So this is Acts 4:32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them. And brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. 
But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the man land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord multitudes of both men and women. Let's pray together. Father, you give us tough passages. Uh, you give us passages where the the good news is incredibly evident, and we feel the love towards you, and there are some passages that do cause us to fear, to sit in awe, to, to wonder. God, guide us even through those. We thank you that you are with us, that the whole of Scripture is meant for our edification to draw us closer to you, and in Jesus' name, amen. So uh, Russell Moore, I've mentioned him a few times from up here. He's one of my personal heroes. Uh, he was formerly the head of the kind of ethics branch of the Southern Baptist Church. He has recently transitioned into writing for Christianity Today. Um, he once told a story that reminded me a lot of, I'm, I'm from South Carolina, uh, and he told a story about being in the South and having a friend who was openly antagonistic towards Christianity. And one day as they're drinking coffee and they regularly meet and they discuss the, the issues of Christianity and kind of trying to persuade each other, one day, his friend, who's been openly antagonistic towards the gospel the whole time, says, you know, uh, Russell, I'd really love it if you would recommend a church for me. And Dr. Moore is stunned. And he's like, wow, I, you know, I didn't know you'd become a Christian and kind of expecting some story about a conversion. And the man said, oh, no, I don't, I don't believe in any of that stuff. I just know that eventually, if I want to be elected politically, I need to be in a church somewhere. Just don't recommend one that gets too weird. No snake holding, please. Uh, now, this story comes from a different time and a different place. Uh, I remember meeting people like that when I was in college at the University of South Carolina who had uh, political ambitions or uh, civic ambitions, and it was clear that they, they just went to church because they knew it connected them to certain communities, that it, uh, it made them look good. They were ambitious people who realized that the facade of religion could benefit them. Dr. Moore puts it this way, about his friend, church membership would protect him from cultural marginalization, which was, to him, scarier than hell. If the Bible is right, though, this kind of performative Christianity is a scary, scary place to be. Uh, God has little tolerance for those who want to use Christianity for their own ends, those ends not being to come into union with the Father. Uh, 
the primary enemy of Jesus in the New Testament are those who pretend that they love God to take advantage of other people. And there are a lot of different ways to get to this kind of performative Christianity. And by that I mean you're doing it for other people or for other games and not before God himself. Maybe there's a, a, you know, you can take a course like Dr. Moore's friend, which is a little more overtly manipulative and intentional. But some of the ways towards performative Christianity can actually start well or look sincere. Maybe you do something really important for your family or your community or your church, and you start to think to yourself, I think God needs me here. I'm indispensable. And then the next step is something like, maybe God kind of owes me this or that. Or, and before you know it, you are performing your faith before people, not before God. Maybe you just think that you're saved so that you can move on to do good works for other people, but you forget that the goal ultimately is to be united with God. One day in the new kingdoms, the new heaven and the new earth, there will be no sin to fight against. What will we be doing then? We will be united with our Father. Maybe you started with a really sincere conversion. You have a story about when you were younger turning to faith, but you look up now and your faith is mostly expressed in bumper stickers and social media. There's only a small kind of untended ember of it left in your heart. Tragically, there are many different roads to this place, but the truth is that we're often tempted to live out our faith before people instead of before God. How much of our faith is truly done before him? It's a convicting question for me as well. And how much of it is driven by a desire to please people? How much of our faith, if we're honest with ourselves, is a performance? Well, our passage today holds up two examples really quickly. It holds up a God-pleaser and a God-deceiver. And so we're going to look at both of them, and uh, it's, it's an easy main point. The God-pleaser leads to life. The God-deceiver leads to death. So let's look at the God-pleaser first. In uh, 432, this passage should sound familiar because it's an echo of something earlier on in Acts when it says that the church is together and they have everything in common. And I've already preached about that a little bit, so I'm not going to go too deep on it. But I want to say a couple of things about it. Firstly, if you remember the high priestly prayer of Jesus, before Jesus leaves, he prays one prayer, and his prayer is, I want, I want Christians to be one. He says it like this, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that may be, they may be one, even as we are one. He wants the believers to be united. I think it's probably providential that uh, Mark is talking about the mass situation as we're preaching this passage. Jesus' biggest prayer is that we would be one. I think the greatest testimony we could probably make to the world right now is to have Republican and Democrat Christians love each other and tolerate each other and speak together and be one and say there's something higher than all of my other commitments. It's Christ. Jesus says, The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one is even as we are one. The same way that Jesus is united with the Father, that's how we're to be united with each other. And in this passage, as the church is starting, it's happening. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. They are coming together as one. And the biggest sign that they're really united is the way that they use their resources. 
Now, it says there wasn't a needy person among them. Uh, and this is not the implication, okay? The implication is not that they immediately sold everything off and went and started a commune somewhere. This is not kind of uh, hippie Christianity. Um, what this is instead is a very targeted, strategic, sacrificial giving. The idea is that as they're in community, someone has something very difficult happen to them. And someone else, moved by the Spirit, makes a real sacrifice. Uh, land ownership, much less than it is now. Selling a piece of land to help some other people was highly sacrificial. This was a costly giving. But as people were in need, they did radical things for each other. It's almost overwhelming to think about the kind of actions they're making for each other. And you can imagine the kind of testimony that would have had around town. Did you hear so-and-so lost their job, they couldn't make any money, and this other guy sold his land and to, give, to make sure they were okay? What is that? Uh, having seen the church act in a lot of really difficult situations, uh, hurricanes, those kinds of things, those sacrificial, that sacrificial giving within the community means a lot. It's radical. People don't do that very often. They, people notice when you put your money where your mouth is on that one, so to speak. So if we could sum it up perfectly, what, what is this group doing? Notice this. It says, no one said any of the things that belonged to him was his own. They're living as stewards of what they own and not as owners of what they own. They are stewards of what they own and not owners of what they own. Does that make sense? <laughs> Stewardship meaning they recognized that what they had was a gift that they would one day have to relinquish. That death would come for all of us and you don't get to keep it. Jesus told this parable once that I'm sure is rec uh, echoing in their hearts about the parable of the talents. Jesus says the master leaves and he has these three servants and he gives one servant ten talents and one servant five and the other one one. And they get to work. And the one with ten invests and does stuff and he doubles it. And the one with five invests and does things and he doubles it. But the one with one talent buries it in the ground. And the master comes back. And to the two who doubled the talents, he says, well done, a good and faithful servant. Here's even more I entrust you with. And the one who buried it in the ground, he said, why did you do this? And the one who buried it in the ground said, I knew you were a hard master, reaping where you did not sow. And so I buried it just to make sure it was safe. He acted out of fear. He kept that thing. He was like, this is mine. I own it. And he buried it in the ground. And the idea of the parable is that that guy had made the wrong decision. The other two who recognized they served a giving master felt the freedom to go forth and steward it, to live with it well. We are stewards. We are not owners. We don't own anything. Our bodies, our money, all of it has been gifted to us by God. We're stewards of those things. Our time, we're gifted those things. This is not like our one life and we have to use everything up. This is a blink in the eternity we will spend before God. We're playing with house money and we're stewarding money given to us by God. And God happens to be a really giving, loving, generous God. It's all a gift. So Luke gives us an example of an individual doing this. He's like, this isn't, I'm not just saying this. Someone actually does this. Joseph named Barnabas comes and he lays it at the feet of the apostles. Someone's in need, he sells the land, he gives the money over. 
Now, Barnabas can do this. We can hear that and say, that is so beyond. I mean, it's, it's difficult to comprehend. But I, I believe Barnabas can do this because he is trying to please God. His eyes are on God. If we look at the moments of radical giving, uh, say Mary dumping the oil out on Jesus' feet, we're locked in on God. They're trying to please the Father. That allows them to do this. He has an audience of one. Uh, I was reading the other day, um, Mackenzie Scott, is, uh, she was married to Jeff Bezos, the owner of Amazon. Uh, they divorced recently, and she's, she's a professional. She would be fine, uh, irregardless of any money she got in the divorce. She's a published author, all of that. But she's found herself in a situation where she has a fortune, you know, billions of dollars. Well, apparently in the last year, she's given away like six billion. Uh, and it's been silently... She has, uh, you know, some, uh, some well-meaning journalist, I'm sure, brought it to the surface, so now it's on the front page of a paper. But until then, she was doing it silently and doing her best to keep it private. She had analyzed these small groups and was sending it out, and she didn't want her name on any of the, uh, on any of the checks handed out, that kind of thing. And as I was reading about her, like, she sounds like someone who understands, like, she's a steward. Like, I happen to have found myself... With all of these, what, what can I do with this money now that I've gotten it? And that's kind of the state we are as Christians. My wife and I have been on the receiving end of this type of grace. Um, I won't go into too much because I don't think they would want me to, to say much about it. But I will say this. There are, there are people financially committed to our children who are not family and not connected to us in any kind of earthly way, but that we're just in the church together. Um, and it's overwhelming. And uh, think about those people and the gifts they've made and think, why would somebody do that? And they'll tell you that the reason they do that is because they serve a loving God who gives, and they want to give too. So those people who have done that in our lives, they know that they're stewards, not owners, and they live their lives before God. So we too, the challenge is, we too must live as, as stewards. How are we going to spend our talents? And uh, if we think about what Jesus mentions as well, when he talks about the woman who gives just like a very small amount, but it's a, a big percentage of her income, God, of course, is the God of all money. And the point here is not the quantity of money or any of those things. It is, it is the gift to God, right? Done to please him, to serve him, to love him. So as we live our lives, and I think, I think of some people I know that I think from an earthly perspective, you might say they've been kind of foolish with their money because they've given quite a bit of it away. But if there's an eternal perspective and they're living before God to please him, it makes absolute sense. So are we going to live to please people to make the mature decision or are we going to live for an audience of one? So that's the God pleaser and that's the setup. And now we see the spicy stuff. We have the, the God deceiver, right? I mean, this is some Old Testament stuff right here. Uh, I hear people occasionally, why is the New Testament so different from the Old Testament? I'm like, well, Acts 5. All right. So here we go. Uh, Ananias and Sapphira, we have, these, we have this couple and a couple of things we know about them, okay? Firstly, they're clearly influenced by the action of Barnabas. They hear the story, they see him do it, and they're like, we would like to be the kind of people who do that in some way. Or we would at least like to be seen as the type of people who would do something like that. They think, that could be us. The way people are talking about Barnabas, that could be us. They also clearly promised beforehand, insinuated, and wanted people to think that they were doing the same thing as Barnabas. 
They wanted people to think we are giving the full amount of money that we have made off this land. Their sin here is not failing to do what Barnabas did. It's deceiving people into thinking they did what Barnabas did. Okay? So they're not coming and saying, yeah, we sold the land. Here's three quarters of the profit. They're coming and saying, we sold the land. Here's all of it, even though they are holding some back. Lastly, they're in on this together. And Luke makes that clear. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property with his wife's knowledge. Now we don't know, did they, did they scheme it together? Is she trying to cover for him? We don't know. But the end game is the same. That both of them individually are trying to deceive the spirit. So Ananias and uh, Sapphira sell this piece of land and Ananias comes in to drop off the money, and somehow Peter knows. I mean, this is probably a Holy Spirit thing. But notice what Peter says. He says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? This is not just some sin. This is a satanic attack on the church at, the, at a pivotal moment in its growth. And this is really interesting, because if you're Satan, all right, hypothetical, all right, let's, you're Satan, and you, uh, you want to take down the church. I don't know if this is the obvious play for me, right? I'm thinking like abuse or just some horrible things. But Satan is like, I want people to lie about what they're doing to grow their reputation. That's all I need to destroy the church. I want people to act like they love God when they don't. And that'll do it. So this is Satan's big play is I'm going to have people, and, you know, on the surface, what they've done is legitimately good. They sold land, and some actual money is going to people in need, right? That's a good thing. But the key is, this is Satan's big play against God to take down the church right at the beginning. He's like, I'm going to stop it right where it starts, and this is how I'm going to do it. When Satan wants to destroy the church, he sends in a Pharisee. And remember what Jesus said about the Pharisees. I mean, Jesus... When you read Jesus, he is so gracious and loving. And when he talks about the Pharisees, you're like, whoa, you know, there's another gear that he kicks on. Do you recognize there's something about the way the Pharisees do it that is a real threat to the way God's church and God's kingdom should operate? I mean, just listen to some of the things Jesus has said. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. Pharisees are apparently are Satan's type of people. And if we think about it, this is actually a comparable action to what Judas does. Judas, it says that Satan motivates him. It has to do with money. And if you remember Judas, the sign of his betrayal is he kisses Jesus on the cheek. It looks like love, but it's hate. It's a mockery of God. And notice what Peter says. Peter says, firstly, you didn't even have to do this. This wasn't a requirement. We weren't saying everybody has to give away all their land and give their money to us. We weren't asking people to do that. You could have just kept your land. Or you could have given half and said, here's half. Cool. Thank you. Why did you lie? And secondly, he's like, you think you are performing all of this in front of people. 
You are trying to deceive people, but I am telling you what you're doing is before God. This is scarier than you think. And at that point, God intervenes and Ananias dies. And Sapphira's, Sapphira's situation goes exactly the same way. Now, some people have wondered, why is God so quick to judge here? Because we have other situations in the New Testament where, clearly, God gives people a lot of bandwidth. I mean, Saul wanders around persecuting and actively killing Christians. And he's not immediately struck down. We have examples in Corinthians of people who have done some terrible things uh, to their community who have opportunities to repent. So what is it about Ananias and Sapphira that, that God acts? Well, a couple of things. One is God always has prerogative. He is the good judge, and the time of our death is in his hands. So that's true forever. Secondly, though, sometimes in the scriptures, judgment kind of breaks through. We get a picture of God's judgment in life and before us, and that's happening here. God sees that this is a threat to the church at a crucial moment, that this is Satan's big play. It's like Satan moves the chess piece and God plays the checkmate. You're not going to touch it. And you'll notice, uh, you'll notice what happens is once again, Satan thinks that this is his best play and God always turns it on its head. It actually does the reverse of what Satan hopes. It strengthens the church in a way instead of hurts it. And we'll get to that in a minute. Uh, I've already mentioned that I was a student at the University of South Carolina. Uh, I love the state a lot. I visit it almost every year. Sometimes it feels like I'm the only one of my friends who left the state. But uh, when I was attending the school, we had two university presidents. Um, one, Andrew Sorensen, the other, Harry Pastides, and both these guys, as far as I could tell, were good, good people. Uh, Andrew Sorensen was famous for every morning at 7 a.m. He would bike around the campus. You could catch up with him, follow along, have a conversation with him. It was an open invitation. I liked him very much. Harry Pastides, the, uh, the president, my second half of my stay there, a good friend of mine was in a car accident that um, he ultimately lost his legs. And uh, this university president visited him several times personally in the hospital. University of South Carolina is a really big university. It meant a lot that he did that. They were good men who, as far as I could tell, really cared about their students and education in general. Well, if you've been paying attention to the news, the University of South Carolina made the news recently for less than impressive reasons. Uh, the most recent university president, apparently, during his graduation address, just recently, made two mistakes. Firstly, he plagiarized his speech from another speech that was on YouTube, and not just some other speech, but a speech with like 13 million views. Cool. And he repeated this speech several times in several different venues. Makes me feel good to have that degree, you know? Uh, and probably worse than that, honestly, to South Carolinians, at some point in the speech, he referred to the University of South Carolina as the University of Southern California. It's hard to say it out loud, I know. <laughs> I told my dad I was using this as an example. He's like, don't bring that out up there. Don't do that. Uh, now, I don't want to be the judge of whether someone should lose their job or not, but he lost his job, and I feel good about that. Um, let's just say that. Now, okay, he needed to lose his job. And why? <laughs> because what he did communicated that the project he was in charge of was a sham, right? 
When someone leading an educational institution plagiarizes a speech, they have undercut everything they're doing. And the next time a professor catches a student for plagiarism, that student is there thinking, well, university president plagiarizes, you know? It undermines everything that that institution says it's about. So I am grateful that he has, he resigned, and he's been replaced actually in the interim by uh, Pastides, the guy who visited the hospital. He's come back to be there for a little bit. So likewise, what Ananias and Sapphira were trying to do would undermine the entirety of what the church was about. The church is about growing close to God, loving one another transparently. And they wanted to use it to grow their stock before people. They wanted to undermine what the whole project was about. And God wouldn't let them. Galatians 6, 7 through 8 says this, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. God is not mocked. And that was the attempt they were trying to do. They thought so little of God that they thought, oh, you know what's more important, that people care and that we're awesome and he won't notice or do a thing. God is not mocked. And you notice the end, as I said, a couple of interesting things. Firstly, it says, none of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. Firstly, there's this fear that permeates the church. That what these people are trying to do has God's backing, and it's very serious business. And I imagine that some people after that stopped before they joined the church to consider very seriously what they were doing. Right? I, I promise I didn't plan this with the membership thing. That's just... Once again, <laughs> Providence. Some, uh, some members are like, well, I wish you had read this before I joined the church. <laughs> My bad. A week off. Um, they didn't dare join them. They, they, they appropriately, I think, began to count the cost. Okay, if I'm going to do this, this is serious. You know, this is a marriage. This means something. And the second thing, at the same time, there are a lot who are added to the number. People heard the story and said, yeah, I want to be a part of that community. That's fascinating. There is, of course, grace from God. All of this is done out of because and can happen. Because Christ has died for us, he covers us in his grace. But I think the other thing people are looking for is, is the church serious? Is the church a place that's moving towards God? Is that the highest aim? And when people see it and see that it's taken seriously, there's a little bit of a, whoa. So we do our, uh, the, for Stony Brook, we do our baptisms out on Sand Street Beach. It's kind of in a public space. And I find it kind of fascinating to stand in the back and observe people observing us, you know. Uh, for a lot of people, they've probably never seen anything like that. And it's Probably kind of weird. <laughs> you know, there's a bunch of us singing songs together. Somebody eventually goes out in the water and gets wet, and then uh, we're really happy for them. It's probably a weird thing. But I think the other thing that's communicated is this level of, this is serious business. We mean this very much. There's a reason why people are crying right now. This is a big deal. We're living our lives before God. God takes the church really seriously, <laughs> and we should as well. So the challenge to us from this, and uh, honestly, it's tempting sometimes when you have a passage, I think, to kind of diffuse it. But the point was, people heard this and were afraid. 
And I think us reading this and feeling a little bit of fear is the right reaction. We should read it and feel a little like, ooh. And we should check ourselves and ask constantly, am I trying to do this thing for performance? Am I performing in front of people? Or is it true that in my heart of hearts, I want God? I want Jesus. Acting Christian leads to death. But seeking God's face leads to life. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word, even when it's challenging. Thank you that you tell us the truth. Thank you for good examples. Thank you for hard examples. We know you are good, that you care desperately about your church. That the moments when your church is taken advantage of, when people use it to harm other people, it pains you on a deep, deep level. Father, there are some people in this congregation right now who have been the victim of that kind of thing, have been taken advantage of by people within the church. And Father, help us to be comforted by the fact that you see and that you will not be mocked, that your church will not be used for other things, will not be used against people, that it is meant to love, that it is meant to give, that we are meant to be one as you are one. Challenge us, Father. Humble us. We love you. We seek your face. We want to be those who pursue you and give as Barnabas gave. In Jesus' name, amen.